Well, on the one hand, you might have thought it was bizarre behavior. As the impeachment hearings were underway, the president was tweeting alongside and tweeting some not uh, very nice things about the testimony that was unfolding. Well, let's take a look at how things have unfolded this far and where we're at with the impeachment hearings. Jeffrey Myers joins me on the line now, lecturer with the Faculty of Law at Thompson Rivers University. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, good morning, Jill, and good morning to your listeners. Uh, What are your thoughts on the fact that the hearings are underway? Uh, We heard from uh, uh, the ousted uh, U.S.-Ukraine ambassador, and while she was testifying, the president was live-tweeting his response. Yeah, that was uh, what you're referring to is uh, uh, Mary uh, Yovanovitch, who is the former U.S. ambassador uh, to the Ukraine. And to her testimony yesterday in the second day of uh, impairing, uh, public hearings, that is, in the, um, in the House Intelligence Committee's uh, impeachment uh, inquiry, right? So there were these sort of very dramatic moments televised live to everybody in the world from the House Ways and Means Committee uh, uh, committee room where um, Ms., uh, former Ambassador Yovanovitch was effectively testifying that she had been pushed out um, by um, by a sort of shadow foreign policy being run uh, through Rudy Giuliani, um, and um, and and it was very significant, and the the um, the testimony was quite damning. And of course, midway through the testimony, in a very dramatic moment, uh, the committee chair Adam Schiff read out a tweet that was sent in real time, as you indicate. Um, sort of um, besmirching her record in office that from the president, right? And so that was intimidating. And the question was, you know, whether or not that was a form of intimidating a witness, which again would be potentially another basis for a draft article of impeachment. Right. And Adam Schiff, even during the hearing, uh, said, we take witness tampering or intimidation of witnesses mm-hmm. very seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, her... her, her um, you know, that, that is what he says. And, and so the question is, you know, was this actually witness intimidation? And is this another form of high crime or misdemeanor that would be impeachable in and of itself? And I think that the, the short answer is that Democrats believe it is and that it might be grounds, again, for another article of impeachment. Um, um, and so and, I, and, I, and, the, and the new and the news was the, the testimony that she had was it was confirming what we had already known from um, the closed door transcripts that had been taken the week before. But nevertheless, it was very dramatic, uh, you know, in there, because she, what she's saying basically is that um, is that um, Mr. Trump had effectively ousted her in order to reverse longstanding U.S. policy in the Ukraine, which was to discourage um, corruption, to encourage the rule of law, transparency, um, and um, and reforms towards you know Westernization and integration of the Ukraine into the West, and it, it, the enhancement of its alliance with the United States, and the provision of military aid against Russian aggression, and that he was reversing all of this, not using the regularly appointed um, diplomatic personnel, but using his own. Uh, his own people, and, and um, in particular, again, Mr. Giuliani, who'd sort of been, according to this testimony, in this sort of a position of doing this intimidation and running this backroom um, policy, but also along with the assistance of Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, both of whom were, by the way, recently indicted on charges that they sought to violate a campaign finance, um, finance laws. And these are particularly the men who worked with 
a corrupt prosecutor in the Ukraine who was Mrs. Yovanovitch's was the subject of Mr. Ms. Yovanovitch's attempt to sort of clean up uh, the the uh, Ukrainian justice system. They worked along with him to sort of um, marginalize her and, and destroy her reputation. Do you think that the the tweeting and the fact that Donald Trump has been tweeting during the testimony and, and perhaps will continue to do so, does it take away or is it a distraction to the actual testimony? Well, look, I think that it's pretty obvious that one of Mr. Trump's techniques for distracting attention away from, you know, um, dramatic revelations that might stand a chance of changing some minds about his presidency, particularly in the context of this very public phase of the impeachment inquiry, is, as he always has, is to careen into the next scandal, right? So that you can see that one of the things that Mr. Trump did was immediately pardon um, two individuals who had been convicted of uh, war crimes in the in the war in Afghanistan and Iraq for shooting unarmed civilians and he he took this opportunity to pardon these individuals which created a mass uh, controversy as a way I think of distracting from you know the previous controversy so I think that's the technique that we stumble from one kind of extreme um, unprecedented uh, type of presidential form of abuse of power to another so much so that we lose our equilibrium and balance. And what do you take uh, of the the testimony so far? We've just gotten into the hearings. They're going to go on for for several weeks. Mm -hmm. What is your your first kind of takeaway from what we've heard so far? Well, I mean, I think the other the other um, the other testimony yesterday, which I think was albeit a little less dramatic uh, than Ambassador Yovanovitch's, but which I think was also quite significant, was in fact potentially over the longer term, this may be even more significant. Was the other witness that came up yesterday, who was was David, was a fellow by the name of David Holmes, and David Holmes had worked for Ms. Yovanovitch when she was uh, the ambassador to the Ukraine. He testified that he overheard Gordon Sondland. Now you'll and your listeners will remember Gordon Sondland was a previous uh, Trump donor. Uh, during the camp, uh, during for his inauguration, and a wealthy donor with no political experience who'd been appointed as the EU ambassador and had sort of been moved over into this shadow foreign policy team along with Rudy Giuliani. So what David Holmes said was that when he was working as an aide for Ms. Uh, Yovanovitch in the U.S. embassy in Kiev, that he had heard it. he had been sitting at a table uh, in a restaurant with Gordon Sondland, right, who you'll know, again, the president, he'll come and testify before the committee as well. He's already revised his testimony one time. He hadn't mentioned this, but she she testifies that she uh, that the aide, uh, sorry, David Holmes, who's the aide, testifies that he heard directly uh, Mr. Sondland speaking to the president and telling him, and I quote, that the Ukrainian president, and this is alarming, this is how these guys talk to one another, quote, loves your ass, this is what the Washington Post uh, reported, and would conduct investigations and, quote, do anything you ask him to. Um, afterwards, Mr. Holmes testifies that Mr. Sondland told him, and this is essential, that the president cared more about the investigation of the Bidens than he did about the Ukraine as a country or as a matter of foreign policy, right? So that's very serious. It's very damaging. It suggests that he's putting his own personal political interests ahead of running the country's foreign policy, and you now have a, a direct witness to hearing that conversation. And although he could only, although you could argue it's only reliable what he overheard Mr. Sondland say, he said that the president's voice was so loud on the phone that everybody at the table heard it, right? So that there's that, that becomes a very significant um, sort of evidence as well, right? And we also, by the way, just as it, this can't be planned, but this is the reality, is that Roger Stone, right, is also the... Um, is also, I think, the sixth or seventh Trump aide that's been convicted 
from the facts arising out of the Mueller investigation. And he was convicted on seven felonies after a jury deliberated for seven hours of obstructing congressional inquiries, lying to investigators under oath, and attempting to block testimony of a witness contrary to his own. And that's um, significant because, um, again, this is the sixth former Trump aide who's been convicted since the election in cases stemming still going back to uh, Robert Mueller's investigation. And, um, and, and the evidence demonstrated overwhelmingly that in the months before the 2016 election, Mr. Stone, a, a longtime friend and informal aide of Mr. Trump, sought to obtain emails that Russia had stolen from, these, from hacked DNC computers and funneled to WikiLeaks, right? Again, this is part of what Mr. Trump is doing in this effort with Ukraine is to show that that is not true. And that, in fact, Ukraine was the one who intervened in order to sort of sabotage Russia. That's his theory. There's no basis in evidence. It's a complete conspiracy, right? But you can see that much of the theory of the case that um, Robert Mueller uh, put together in his report has resulted in actual convictions of people around him. And Mr. Stones is only the latest, right? And he, you know, in his in his trial, he could he said he couldn't recall the specifics of 21 conversations that he'd had. Um, 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 sorry, Mr. The President, remember, had had written had answered um, questions uh, in written form for the Mueller investigation, and in those questions, he had indicated that he couldn't recall specifics of 21 conversations he had with Mr. Stone in a period of six months prior to the 2016 election. Uh, five minutes after the verdict, again the same day as uh, as the committee uh, hearing, he can, he writes, "So they now convict Roger Stone of lying and want to jail him for many years to come." Um, and he again, the reason he has been convicted is because he misled investigators and lied uh, about the uh, events being investigated by the Mueller investigation. And that means, in effect, that promising leads were never followed up. And some inaccurate conclusions may have been relied upon uh, by the Mueller report. So, again, this is another uh, sort of uh, broader node in a kind of picture of um, whatever conspiracy did or didn't exist, the cover-up, as always is the case, is, is enormous, and its tentacles reach very far, and all of these things are related in that sense. All right. Uh, we will leave it there uh, as we continue to watch what happens uh, with the hearings. Uh, Jeffrey Myers, I'm sure we'll talk to you about this again, but thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you, Jill. It's always a pleasure to be on. So we have talked uh, a fair amount about distracted driving and the laws around distracted driving, the numbers, and there have been court cases, as you know. But this is a particular case where the person charged with distracted driving claimed it wasn't her behind the wheel. Well, the courts did not buy that claim. And joining me now to talk a little bit more about this case is Kyla Lee, who is a lawyer with Acumen Law. Kyla, thanks so much for being on the show again. Thank you for having me. Uh, What is your take on this? Uh, The appeal, uh, the B.C. Court of Appeal uh, tosses out or the court tosses out this appeal by uh, a driver uh, charged with distracted driving who claimed the officer didn't prove that she was the one behind the wheel. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a B.C. Supreme Court judgment. Uh, I think there's a difference between claiming it's not you behind the wheel and saying the Crown has to prove that I was the one driving. Um, And this case highlights the frustration of drawing that, you know, seemingly artificial line in the sand when you're trying to deal with a traffic ticket, because the process is actually designed to prove that it was you that was at the roadside just by your attendance in court or your hiring a lawyer to deal with it in court. 
Right, because her her argument was that even though the officer took her driver's license and the insurance or her driver's uh, the license and registration, he didn't actually or the officer didn't actually identify her. Yes. So just because an officer takes a person's driver's license doesn't mean that they've correctly determined that that person is the person for whom the license was produced. What they're supposed to do is something called the Shriver's test, where they compare the person on the driver's license to the person that's in front of them to make sure that they are one and the same and that they haven't been given somebody else's driver's license. Okay. Have you had cases or seen cases where the driver's license, where the person that, that received the ticket wasn't actually the person? There are cases where that has happened. Um, people who are prohibited drivers or people who are trying to avoid being arrested on outstanding warrants or have any other problems with the police or ICBC um, will sometimes uh, give a fake name or fake identification to the police, whether it's a family member or a friend. This happens a surprising amount, which is why police are trained to do these additional steps to verify somebody's identity. Uh, because I would imagine, though, is it, is it not another offense if you do that? Oh, absolutely. If you provide uh, the wrong name or identification to a police officer, that's obstruction. It's a criminal offense. It's very serious. But I don't think people realize it at the time. They're so focused on avoiding whatever consequence they're trying to avoid by pretending to be someone else that they don't realize they're committing a subsequent offense. And in this case, where the woman who was given the ticket, she was pulled over for distracted driving. The officer said that uh, she was so distracted that she didn't even see him, uh, even though he was wearing the yellow safety vest, didn't see him until she until he knocked on the driver's side window. And at that point, the officer says that she put the cell phone down. Uh, At that point, though, I mean, is the it seems strange that you would go from what seems like a pretty clear case of somebody that's on a phone to her saying well it wasn't me behind the wheel well and again that's that's the distinction she wasn't saying in court it wasn't me behind the wheel she was saying the prosecution has not brought enough evidence to court to prove that it was me behind the wheel because even with a distracted driving ticket the the prosecution or the officer still has to prove all of the elements of the offense, including the identity of the person that they were dealing with. So you have the right to say, this has not been proven. I'm here in court, I'm disputing this ticket, and they haven't proven that it was me without officially saying, and it wasn't me that was behind the wheel. It's a, it's a very fine distinction, but it's an important one because it recognizes who has the burden of proof on that fundamental issue in any case. So would you say, so anybody then, if you are pulled over and and charged or suspected of distracted driving, if you feel that the officer doesn't do enough to absolutely prove it's you, d- does anybody then have a case to challenge it? Potentially, yes. Uh, the problem that arises is the difficulty in putting that argument before the court because as we we saw in this case you know by her by virtue of her hiring a lawyer and having the lawyer appear as agent to respond to the ticket that was enough for the court to infer that she was the same person um, that had been dealt with by the police at the time and so if you want to uh, raise an issue of identity in court not only do you have to attend but you also have to have a lawyer essentially conduct the trial for you because if you stand up in court and say you know I'm Miss Smith and I'm charged with this offense then uh, and I'm you know I'm asserting my innocence here um, then you're identifying yourself in court and as soon as uh, and that 
that firms up the proceedings. So it actually imposes a huge burden uh, on people procedurally to be able to successfully make that argument. It is an interesting case and, and, and one that I, I think people might not think about all that much. And I guess it's different that if you're behind the wheel and it's a distracted driving case, you're in a position or in a scenario where by law you have to have a driver's license and you have to have the driver's license with you and, and insurance. What if it was something like jaywalking or say a violation on transit where you didn't have the fare with you and, you're, and you didn't have identification, you're not required to have identification. And then could you make the argument that, well, I didn't provide identification, there's no way the officer knows it was me. Those arguments become a lot more stronger in circumstances where there's not identification documents produced because the officer has to engage in more to determine that the person they're dealing with is the person they say they are. Uh, And the risk of a false identification situation becomes much more heightened. Um, But even still, uh, courts have inferred that by somebody filing a notice of dispute to challenge the ticket, showing up in court and saying, yes, your worship, I am John Smith, I'm here to fight this ticket, that that's enough to establish that they're the person named on the ticket and to make that link in identity. So you would still, if you wanted to make that argument, need to have a lawyer represent you and tell the court at the first instance there's going to be an issue with identity in this case. Right, which does make sense that if if it wasn't you, you wouldn't be fighting the ticket. Although I guess, yeah, yeah, I mean, there wouldn't be really a scenario where you'd be, you would have this ticket if you hadn't been there in the first place. Unless you had a family member who posed as you and then owned up to it after the fact, but the court would expect you and the family member to be there and to put that evidence forward. Right. Or if you had a twin or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what do you, do, do you find that this case then, do, do you think this is, this was the right ruling in this particular case with this driver? I mean, as frustrating as it is to me, yes, I think the court got it right uh, in this case. I just I I do find a lot of frustration with the process of of essentially shoring up an essential element of the offense by virtue of compelling a person to participate in the process if they don't want to have the ticket on their record. And I wish there was another way that we could structure traffic court that doesn't presume that by showing up to dispute your ticket, you're at least in part uh, proven guilty on one of the elements of the offense. Yeah, and even on a on a lower level, I mean, I think in the city of Vancouver, I'm not sure about other jurisdictions, but the same thing with fighting parking tickets and that it's assumed you kind of have to fight your way out of it. And if you challenge it and you lose, you still get the penalty or you get an extra penalty for challenging it. Same with tickets. If you, you know, any traffic ticket, if you pay them early, you get a little bit of a discount, um, whereas many tickets like speeding have a minimum fine. So if you dispute it, you don't get the benefit of that discount, even if you show up to court and plead guilty right away. Hmm. So do you think it would help then or, or would we see, I guess, is the concern that if we had that, that different mechanism or a mechanism that made it a bit easier that more people would dispute their tickets? I don't think so, because the reality is that the vast majority of the time in a traffic ticket situation, the police officer is asking the person for their license, they're copying the information from the license, they're comparing the information to the person before them. It's really rare in my experience that police officers don't engage in that test to determine that they're dealing with the same person, and it's usually just because they forgot because the situation was dynamic and unfolding. Hmm. All right. Well, it's an interesting case, uh, definitely. Uh, Kyla, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about this more. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you again. But thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me.
Well, you might have heard this story in the news. BC really leading the way when it comes to regulations around vaping and rules to regulate vaping. The first in the country to announce uh, tough new rules about this. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about vaping is Elizabeth Sawick, a professor in the School of Nursing at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Uh, we have, I believe it's three confirmed uh, vaping-related illness uh, cases in BC. Uh, the idea being there's probably more. Those are the confirmed ones. How big of an issue do you think it is, uh, this increase or, or the popularity of vaping? Well, it's certainly been um, a, a very startling increase over the last five years among young people. So um, the BC Adolescent Health Survey first asked about e-cigarettes or vaping in 2003, and the most recent survey last year found that um, now we're seeing more young people vaped in the past month than have ever tried cigarettes in their life. One in five young people reported vaping in the past month. So that's a lot of young people that are vaping with nicotine. And of course, the issue is that if you um, use nicotine, you become addicted to it. And um, the challenge there is that if your e-cigarette battery dies or you run out of e-juice or the the e-cigarette breaks, then what are you going to do to get that nicotine? The most easy thing to shift to is cigarettes. And and where do you think we kind of lost the way in that it became this popular activity? Because wasn't vaping first brought out to kind of help people perhaps who were longtime smokers stop smoking? Yeah, I mean, it was it was in the same way as we have nicotine gum and nicotine patches. It was first billed as a um, a way to help with smoking cessation. Um, but as with with so many things, this it's electronic. It's cool looking. It um, creates a um, a set of of steam that comes with flavors. And so, um, because it had been billed as healthier than cigarettes. And at the time, we didn't have the the research evidence that suggests that there are some health consequences, especially for some of the the vaping flavors or juices that um, may not be as carefully controlled in terms of of how they're produced. And so some of the chemicals that are in them can actually harm lungs more than people realized. So when it was coming out and it was saying, oh, this is healthier, young people are like, oh, but this is also cool. And... It was a, a, a cool and theoretically harmless way to um, enjoy something that also gets you hooked on nicotine, which gives you a buzz and is, has all kinds of negative um, health, physical sensations when you're trying to quit it. And so do you think, is it people that are, is it the nicotine that they're getting addicted to, or is it the other, as you mentioned, the chemicals and the juices and the flavors that come in some of them? It's, it's actually the nicotine they're getting addicted to. That's the thing that, that, you know, when you take that into your body, it's like it gives you that rush. But more importantly, your body gets used to it. And when you don't have it on board, you start getting all of those negative uh, feelings and, um, you know, physical responses that like, oh, I just need this nicotine to keep going. And so while it's the nice flavors and things that actually um, may get uh, young people continuing to use it, long enough to actually get um, addicted to the nicotine. The challenge is, of course, that once you've been using it, um, it's really, really hard to stop. And many of the new Juul um, and and other kinds of of 
e-cigarette, e-juice, nic- has much more nicotine in it than your single tobacco cigarette does. So there are young people who, you know, if you're, if you're smoking a whole jewel pod, you're actually getting an entire pack of cigarettes. Um, so that's a, a much more intense um, amount of tobacco as well. Do you think the the rules announced or the regulations uh, that were announced then will help curb that as far as limiting the amount of nicotine that can be uh, in the product and raising the the provincial sales tax? I think that the rules that were um, laid out are actually a really good step in the right direction. Um, They actually took a page or three out of the playbook in trying to reduce cigarette smoking. Um, We know from previous research that adolescents especially are really sensitive to price. And so adding taxes to make it more expensive, um, restricting the really cool flavors to places where you have to be a certain age and they card you just walking in, you know, like uh, liquor stores and things are also really important to reduce access Um, as well as the, for me, the really, really important part, actually putting money towards developing information campaigns by youth, for youth, on social media, which is one of the new places where um, e-cigarettes are being advertised in creative new ways that uh, are hard to actually get a handle on. So that information, so that young people actually have the facts, that was one of the key strategies with uh, cigarette smoking. They had the uh, campaign called Target Market, where young people designed advertisements to show other young people just how Big business was targeting them for product and to become lifelong customers by being addicted to nicotine, not because they had their best interests in mind. Right. Uh, And you mentioned the advertising and and the fact that this will be uh, young people educating other young people, because that was another thing. And we had talked to the mayor of Richmond about this, about Richmond banning ads when they where they can under their jurisdiction. But but does it seem that the, the more targeted youth talking to youth uh, might be a better way to go about that than other than the, the idea of perhaps banning ads at bus shelters and that kind of thing? No, I think you need both, actually, because the more places that young people are exposed to images of e-cigarettes as being cool, as being part of normal life, as being just part of regular day-to-day experience, the more likely they're going to say, well, you know, I should try this. Why, why not? And, of course, the challenge becomes that if you try it and you use it just long enough, um, you become addicted to the nicotine and then it's hard to stop. Right. And, and also, too, I mean, the, the addiction obviously is, is a big issue. But even some of the cases out of the States, I mean, there have been vaping related deaths, uh, the, the idea of this popcorn lung, this lifelong illness. So you would think that would be, uh, I mean, obviously useful information, but enough to really make people think twice about, do, uh, about vaping at all. Um, I, I think that it, it's going to take a while. Um, you know, we knew for a long time that smoking cigarettes give you cancer and heart disease and all kinds of other things. I think one of the challenges is that for some people, this is a, oh, well, this has only happened to a few people. It won't happen to me. For other people, it's like, well, that's fine. It's good to know that, but I still need my nicotine because I get really sick and unwell when I'm not taking it. So I still have to figure out how to do that. And I just recently heard, which is giving me a lot of concern, um, someone said, well, they're so scared about the 
um, the effects, like these deaths and things from the e-cigarettes, they're going back to cigarettes. Hmm. And, of course, we know the health consequences of smoking tobacco. The goal is to try to help people actually quit the nicotine, to quit both vaping and e-cigarettes. Um, but it's also really important for people to pay attention to um, the further information that's coming out as to what kinds of, of um, e-juice, what kinds of cigarettes or, or the, the liquids and the products seem to be implicated in the, um, the illnesses and the deaths. They're still trying to figure it out. One of the things that has shown up in both the, um, the number of people who've gotten sick and in the lungs of some of the people who have died is vitamin E acetate. One of the challenges with e-juice is they don't come with labels um, that have ingredients on them. So it's hard to know if what you're getting actually contains some of the things that might increase the risk that you're going to get sick. Right, which also makes it seem strange that you're able to buy these products in so many places that it really doesn't seem all that regulated. And like you said, you don't even know what's in it. Yeah, and and this is where I I certainly hope that Health Canada, as the federal government who's responsible for um, investigating and inspecting and ensuring product safety, um, gets involved in greater detail and that they they really pay attention to the research that's coming out and try to ensure that there are either quality controls or, you know, careful ways to actually prevent um, the latest uh, kinds of, of homemade or uninvestigated or un-quality un assurance inspected kinds of chemicals in the e-juices coming into people's um, lives and being able to be purchased everywhere. All right. So we will leave it there, uh, but uh, inform, uh, interesting uh, health information, definitely. And hopefully people do get that message. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us this morning. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Well, as you likely have been hearing in the news, uh, more disruptions and uh, some delays, some crowding on Metro Vancouver buses as the job action continues in that dispute. And joining me on the line is Gavin McGarrigal. He is the Western Regional Director with Unifor. Gavin, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, how are your members doing uh, with the job action and uh, the uh, now with the overtime refusal? How, what is the, the mood and feeling of, of uh, members of the union? The mood is extremely firm and determined. Our members know exactly what they're fighting for, and um, you know they're determined to, uh, to stick together and get it. Uh, there was some sign-up sheets for overtime on Thursday, and uh, all I saw was blank overtime sheets. So uh, they're going to stick together, and they're going to make sure that their issues are addressed. And how confident are you that uh, we can get things addressed or that things will be addressed in the near future? Well, I'm not very confident right now because there's a real denial of the key issues by TransLink and Coast Mountain. It's actually quite interesting that you see uh, they've given up the pretense of having Coast Mountain comment. It's really just TransLink all the time, which really tells the true story to everyone. TransLink doesn't treat its workers fairly. It's dividing people up into separate companies and then telling them they can't uh, look over at each other. So skilled trades workers from Coast Mountain are not supposed to look across the street to uh, SkyTrain workers, and yet everything is... is uh, branded with uh, TransLink. So, you know, there's a real denial of those issues that uh, that we've been talking about. And until they sort of wrap their head around that these issues are real and, and they're not going away, we're not going to get a deal. 
And what was it about? So when we talk about the comparisons, and you and you say that uh, that workers will look to to SkyTrain mechanics or other people doing similar or the same jobs within. Te- I mean, it's all the same company, but but as you said, kind of branched out into different companies. What was it? Was there a breaking point that it's become this issue now, and that it hasn't been an issue for the past eighteen years? No, it definitely has been an issue. It was an issue in the last round of negotiations as well, and we did manage to reach uh, parity at certain points uh, during the contract. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, the gap grew once again. And, you know, last round of uh, contract bargaining, I was there for that as well. And there was at least some recognition uh, by the company that they needed to address it. This time, they're just uh, sticking their fingers in their ears and, and saying there's no comparison at all. We saw just the other day, for instance, how important the skilled trades are when you had the trolley bus uh, lines come down in downtown Vancouver. And, uh, you know, you see people up working on on power lines and and doing really important work for for people. And yet somehow if those same electricians are doing that work at SkyTrain, uh, they're getting three bucks an hour more. I mean, that's just fundamentally wrong. So, but if it was addressed during the last round of bargaining, why are we back in this situation now? Because there's no ongoing commitment from Transing to maintain the wages. So, you know, there are different unions in, and so, you know, we we tried to phase it in, and uh, we had a letter of understanding that there was supposed to be some discussions during the contract so that it didn't uh, didn't get out of whack again, but the company uh, ultimately uh, had a bunch of discussions, as they like to do, and then refused to act on it. And so, therefore, we had no choice but to bring it forward to um, collective bargaining. We assumed they were going to you know, live up to, to their contract and live up to the, the spirit of the discussions with us and actually make sure it didn't spread. But unfortunately, it did. And now they're acting like it never happened. At this point, then, we saw the overtime ban, as you mentioned, the sign-up sheets uh, for overtime shifts, uh, pe- uh, drivers uh, and, and uh, that are not signing up for it. And uh, you've set out uh, the schedule kind of for overtime refusal going into next week. Is that still what the plan is? Is it Monday, Wednesday and Friday? Yes, that's right. Uh, Next week, uh, our members will be refusing uh, all overtime on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. The ongoing maintenance and CBUS overtime ban will continue and our drivers uh, won't be wearing uniforms. We're trying to do uh, a phased-in, measured approach uh, until finally the message gets through. Both our members in maintenance and drivers are still working their full shifts. They're still you know, going to work and, and putting in a full work week. Um, they're just simply uh, backing off on overtime, and you can already see the impact. So we don't want to have to escalate any further, but um, you know, what we've been saying to the public is the messages of support that we're receiving from them need to be translated over to the company so they get the message uh, that uh, the public supports the drivers and the maintenance workers. Uh, if you do have to escalate, do you know what the next step would be in that? Uh, there's various options that we've talked about. There's, um, you know, working to rule, there's sporadic strikes, there's rotating strikes, there's, um, you know, we're looking at whether or not drivers uh, should have to collect fares. Uh, there's a number of options available to us, so we're still discussing that. You know, the hope is is that um, they come to their senses this weekend and we don't even have to have any disruption next week. But if not, it'll be what we've announced and, uh, you know, we'll take further action as, as we move forward. Uh, is there any concern on the part of the union that if this does escalate and goes on for any length of time, you will be in the position where you could be legislated back to work? No, we're not really concerned about that. I mean, we have a fundamental right to strike. It's protected by the Constitution. And uh, right now, as I said, our members are working full-time shifts. So, um, you know, I, I don't really see that as something uh, on the near horizon. You know, uh, there are many options open to the provincial government uh, beyond that as well. I mean, they're, you know, ultimately transing is created by a provincial government act, and they appoint uh, directors, etc. 
so you know we're focused on the task at hand which is which is negotiating this contract and um, you know trying to avoid escalation but ultimately if we have to go there we will and um, we'll see where that takes us um, Translink yesterday said that to, to deal with the, the overtime ban and the disruptions to some of the busier bus routes, uh, they're pulling buses off the less busy routes. So there would still be perhaps a bit of a longer wait on the busier routes, but not. But instead of, say, a half hour or a much longer wait on the less busy. Uh, do you have any idea how long they could continue doing that before we're going to see all of the routes disrupted or we're going to see those longer waits? Well, I think, once again, you know, Transink out there misleading the public. They're trying to make them think that they've got a contingency plan to deal with this and that everything is going to be okay, uh, but it's not. It's simply the uncertainty throughout the system. You know, we or they cannot accurately predict which routes are going to be affected on any given day, uh, whether or not uh, people are going to have to wait longer. And so there's a massive amount of uncertainty for all of the passengers out there, which, of course, you know, we hate to see. But, you know, Transink trying to say, don't worry, we can manage through this. Um, you know, ultimately, the disruption is going to get worse, and um, you know the public is is going to get pretty angry at at the bosses who've uh, let these conditions deteriorate so bad. Uh, what about uh, talks or negotiations? Because there was some hope, some optimism when both sides uh, were back uh, bargaining this past week. That didn't last uh, all that long. Uh, are, are there any plans, any movement to return to the table? No, not at this stage. The company and the union continue to stay in contact with each other, and you know we're. We're trying to see if there's anything that can be done, um, but uh, no scheduled negotiations. But really, as we've been saying all along, it's simply—it's not simply a question of whether or not this is complicated or whether or not uh, you know you need to spend days at the table. The, the issues are clear. Uh, we know where the gaps are, and if they're serious about resolving them, it can be, it can literally be done in a matter of hours. So, you know, we've indicated we would be prepared to meet on the weekend or, or at any time, um, really, to try to get this thing done. But um, you know, they really need to come that mandate to address these key issues. Uh, But it sounds like from the company, they are not willing to budge when it comes to wages. And uh, they constantly will not talk about comparing to other uh, sectors, other companies, other provinces. So if they're not going to budge, how does this move forward? Well, it's an interesting question of democratic accountability. I mean, this is part of the problem with Transink is that it's completely unaccountable. They think it's uh, no problem to compare executive compensation to places like Toronto, but you can't do that for drivers. Uh, they hide behind the fiction that Transink has all these independent companies. And the question is, where do the citizens come in? We know that the complaints have been coming in by the hundred. We've handed out tens of thousands of leaflets and, and buttons, and we know there's strong support out there in the public. And so ultimately, it comes back to you know who does Transink answer to? And I say they answer to the public. And ultimately, there are all the mayors in all of the different regions. And and I know that the mayors are concerned. The mayors have always pushed for expanded transit. And I know that you know the transit workers live and are citizens in their communities as well. So, you know, if the Transink executives won't get the message and the job action. Uh, won't help with that message, and perhaps it's time for some of the elected officials to start taking control of transit again and make it accountable to the public like it should be. All right, uh, Gavin, we will leave it there, but uh, I'm sure we will get uh, an update from you again soon. Thank you so much, uh, as always, for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks, Jill.